0: production. Hello, you are listening to The Briefing. It's Tuesday the 25th of May and today's briefing comes from a listener tip-off. Carol got in touch and asked us to investigate why protesters are dying on the streets of Colombia.
1: What we've since seen is not only large and protracted mobilisation and protests, but also large numbers of civilian deaths.
0: Yeah, so we've looked into the issue facing Colombians for today's briefing. So you'll find out why there's been weeks of mass protests in the South American country. First to today's headlines with a special guest, Tash Belling from The Morning Briefing. Hey, Tash. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good fellow mudgy kid, by the way. Good country, New South Wales stock. <laughs> um, she's also uh, with Steve Price on the listener app on Australia Today, which is a breakfast news live show with talkback, the whole lot. It's amazing. Let's get into headlines.
2: Thank you, Tom. Well, the Victorian government is so far resisting a lockdown as thousands of people in Melbourne are ordered to get tested and self isolate so authorities can try and work out exactly how this new COVID cluster has emerged in the city's north.
0: We all have our role to play here and we all need to step up and do what we can to keep ourselves safe, our families safe and our community safe. That's the Victorian Health Minister Martin Foley speaking yesterday. I imagine Melburnians are not wanting to go into lockdown Tash after what they've been through last year. It was revealed that four members of a Melbourne family have got the virus and this cluster breaks 86 days with no community transmission in Victoria.
2: Yeah, Tom, it would be really worrying for so many Victorians who have gone through so much especially during COVID. Now authorities have issued alerts for a number of Melbourne venues visited by the family members including a local Woolies a Nandos store and also a swimming centre. Now, the first of the cases a man aged in his 70s is said to have had a high viral load. And this is really interesting and concerning, I think, for authorities. Mm -hmm. And the other three cases are close family contacts. It's unknown at this stage how the man got the virus. And I think that's what's concerning health authorities if they have not been able to track down this missing link as yet.
0: And so interesting that they are resisting um, the lockdown so far. Here's Victoria's Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, yesterday.
2: We have to ready ourselves for uh, any other positives. And and when there are close contacts who become positive, uh, you know, it raises the possibility that even casual contacts could uh, become positive as well. Authorities are using this cluster to encourage people to get vaccinated, including everyone over the age of 50 and anyone under 50 with a relevant health condition. And I think this is yet again, Tom, many health authorities have been concerned. We've been living in this bubble, which Mm. is just about to burst because we've had such a big problem with the vaccination rollout. And if we do get an outbreak of COVID, there are many vulnerable people who have not had the life saving jab.
0: Yeah, that's right. I guess on the upside, These little clusters could be the wake-up call people need to actually go out and get the jab. And more soul-searching for the Labor Party. Senior members of Labor and the unions are calling on the Federal Party to change its approach after that failed by-election in New South Wales over the
1: weekend. It's a diabolical result for the Labor Party and a real wake-up call. The Labor brand is in trouble.
2: Yeah, that was a pretty adamant federal Labor MP for Hunter, Joel Fitzgibbon, speaking yesterday. Gosh, he's absolutely fired back at Labor, hasn't he? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, he's been doing this for a while now. I don't don't know how this is going to end. So this state seat of the upper Hunter is in his federal seat. So he's clearly worried that all the coal miners are going to vote him out of office come the election.
2: And especially yet again, we're seeing the climate change debate rear its uh, ugly head. Now, representatives from one of the key unions, the CFMEU, have this morning told News Corp, the party is falling behind, as you mentioned there, Tom, in cold country, and it needs to stop focusing on the inner cities. It's interesting because people, traditionally, Labor is all about the working class and looking after workers' rights, and it seems they've forgotten where the heart and soul of the party is.
0: Well, it's tricky because the majority of Australians do live in those cities. Um, but they also need to win over these regional seats that um, have big mining economies, um, like the one you and I grew up in, um, Coal Mine, and Colmine, mm. and you would know that a lot of well-paid people in that community work in the mines. If, if one of your friends growing up had a nice house, like, yeah, his dad works in the mines. and That's so fine. So you can't underestimate what that income means to those communities. Anthony Albanese is doing his best to kind of um, keep a brave face. This is how he's responded.
1: Let's get a bit of perspective here. This is a seat that Labor has not held in the last nine decades at any time.
0: Yeah, so interesting one there. We'll see how they respond to this challenge of appealing to people in the cities, but also these seats. Yeah, but it's
2: also reflective, Tom. As you know, we both grew up in the country, there is this um, constant narrative that a lot of the decisions we saw it during uh, the drought, we're seeing it now with the mouse plague that's hit a lot of regional areas, there's a lot of decisions are made uh, in the cities Mm. that these leaders really don't have an understanding of these key issues that affect rural areas. And as you mentioned, the mining jobs, there is a real issue in a lot of regional areas where people have come off the land and they're earning double or triple what they normally would have in some of those jobs. To go in and say that industry is shutting down, you need to go and replace it with jobs that, you know, these people can live on.
0: Yeah, and they can trust. So you can go in and say, oh, there's there's going to be tens of thousands of new jobs in renewables, um, and there may well be, but are those jobs there now and will they be as solid Longevity. as the mining jobs? That'll take a bit of convincing, I'd say. Australia's preparing to close its embassy in Afghanistan, in the capital there of Kabul, as Western troops leave the country.
2: Yeah, Tom, sources in Australia and Afghanistan have told The Australian the closure of the embassy is imminent, with contracts for security providers to finish up next month.
0: Yeah, this comes as a report from the US Defence Department uh, into the first quarter of this year that found there were a 37% surge in attacks on Afghanistan security forces by the Taliban.
2: Now, the last of the Australian troops, as we know, are set to leave Afghanistan in September.
0: Former Myanmar leader Aung San Suu Kyi has appeared in court and met with her lawyers for the first time since she was deposed in a coup in February.
3: Her physical condition seems good to me. She is as much an alert and resolute as ever.
2: One of Ms Suu Kyi's lawyers, Kin Manzo, speaking to the BBC there. Now, the former leader is facing a litany of charges from a legal position of walkie-talkies, that's an interesting charge yeah. uh, to violating state secret laws. Yeah, Aung
0: San Suu Kyi's legal team told reporters that she's had no access to news during her detention and was only partially aware of all the events that have been going on in Myanmar, where hundreds of people have been killed across mm. the country in recent months, protesting the coup, which threw her out. So a complete mess there. Alright, that's it for the headline. Thank you very much, Tash Belling.
2: Oh, thank you, Tom. Now to go and do Your Morning Agenda and Australia Today with Steve Price, so tune
0: in then. Check out those other shows that Tash is a part of. Annika's jumping in after this message from our sponsor. So we always love it when you get in touch with us via our Instagram account, slide into DMs. We love it, don't we, Annika? We got a message two and a half weeks ago, um, which was a really interesting one, from one of our listeners called Carol. She's a Colombian living in Australia, and as a fan of the briefing, she writes that she is taking the liberty to ask us to look into the violent protests on the streets of Colombia.
3: Unfortunately, though, in Carol's home country, she's seen what were protests that started off about tax reform turn into what she calls a massacre on the streets.
1: We need help because people is being killed. And that is not, it's not a democracy. That is not a way to live for people who have the right to fight against their rights.
0: So we've picked up on that message and we've decided to look into it on today's briefing, find out what is going on in Colombia and why the protest that started on April 28th are still going and over 40 people have been killed. Protests
2: in Colombia's major cities devolving into chaos and bloodshed. (laughs) The government has gone against the country and the country is responding in more than 500 cities.
0: So Annika, this all started from A tax proposal that was very unpopular with working class Colombians.
3: Yeah, look, the situation in Colombia is pretty bad. To put it in perspective, the poverty rates jumped from about 37% in 2019 to about 50%. The GDPs dropped, unemployment's really, really high. And to make matters worse, Colombia has one of the lowest tax revenues in the world. In 2019, it collected 20% of GDP in taxes. Now, only Mexico collected a smaller percentage among OECD countries. So the government's looking for new ways to make money, and they decided to implement taxes on household products like eggs and milk, petrol, meat, utilities to turn the lights on. And basically, it was going to see Colombians who earn more than about $600 US a month, that's not very much a week, they were going to have to declare income for the first time and, of course, pay tax on that. And that triggered huge protests because there's a real wealth divide in Colombia and people who didn't earn much money wanted to know, I guess, why they were having to fix this problem. Now, it really hit ahead when the finance minister was asked how much a dozen eggs cost and he had no idea and he took a punt and he guessed about 25% of the actual price. And of course, that really angered people because I guess for the first time, it really showed how much the upper class were out of touch.
0: Yeah, so that's like a politician in Australia being asked on TV how much for a dozen eggs and saying, oh, about $1.50. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Absolutely. And look, we do see them get trapped on this a little bit. I saw you know, in the last election, Bill Shorten was asked how much an electric car cost and he didn't know. So often those basic questions do trip people up. But this one really, I guess, epitomised what's happening in Colombia at the moment.
0: Yeah. So let's get deeper into it. What's been happening on the streets of Colombia, why it's turned violent and why this goes way deeper than the price of eggs in Colombia. Alexandra Phelan is a Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Monash Uni. She's an expert on Colombian politics. She's travelled there doing research on the ground. Alexandra, can you tell us about these protests? How many people have been on the streets? How widespread are they?
1: So the protests are actually nearly entering into a fifth week and are quite large scale. We're talking about large mobilizations in most of the key cities in Colombia. Uh, in Cali, we've seen significant protests, but also in Medellin and Bogota, but also throughout the rural regions within the country as well. Essentially, Colombia has really been facing financial difficulties for quite a while, but COVID has really began to push the country into further debt. Um, we've seen fiscal debt triple between 2019 and 2020, the national poverty rate has risen. Now is at about 50%. Unemployment rate rose last year as a result of COVID and the GDP also dropped. So what has been happening is that President Ivan Duque, who is the leader of quite a conservative far-right party in Colombia, proposed a tax reform in an attempt to increase state revenue. And this really consisted of very unpopular reforms at a time where Colombians were struggling. So, as some examples, it expanded the number of people who pay income tax. Uh, It scrapped some tax benefits and added sale tax on many basic staples. So, what happened was that when the general strike was called by unions and also opponents of the reforms on the 28th of April, the National Police, which is part of the Colombian Armed Forces, responded with overwhelmingly excessive use and force. And what we've since seen is not only large and protracted mobilisation and protest, but also large numbers of civilian deaths.
3: Is this a new issue in Colombia? There's always been an issue between the richer and the poorer classes. So why is it, I guess, taking such a toll now? And can you try and explain to us a bit who would fall into both those classes? Say, if we look at it from an Australian context, where would a teacher fit in this sort of battle?
1: That is a very, very good question. The last election was literally between President Ivan Duque and a former M19 guerrilla known as Gustavo Petro. So there's been a massive divide in terms of, I guess, more left-leaning popular sentiment and right-leaning popular sentiment. Now, in terms of, I guess, the type of um, voters that perhaps would vote for Central Democratico, it would be the higher and middle class more generally. A teacher could potentially fit within both of these voting categories. But what we've seen in terms of the turnout and the protests themselves is that this seems to be coming overwhelmingly from young people who have really bared the brunt of, I guess, quite a be a bleak lookout for Colombia's economic situation, but also members of the rural population as well who have been experiencing violence, um, even since the signing of the peace agreement with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia or the FARC. And we've also begun to see a turnout of Indigenous populations as well.
3: So the government are trying to delegitimize this movement in the streets. Uh, that's not the first time we have seen governments use this sort of tactic. Is it working or is this more widespread than just, I guess, the fringes of society?
1: Yeah, there has been, for a little while, quite a growing degree of popular discontent um, against Central Democratic or the Democratic Centre Party, which is Duca's party. A lot of this has been linked to corruption within this particular administration, and also the fact that Iván Duca himself is really seen as a protege to a former Colombian president, Álvaro Uribe, who... Uh, was popular at the time, but at the same time, really placed emphasis on, I guess, security consolidation in Colombia's civil war. As a result of this particular approach, we saw an increase in human rights violations. He was popular in some segments of Colombian society, but since then um, has had allegations of links to organized crime groups. Um, there's been a lot of controversy in that respect. But I think the bigger issue, or one of the larger issues here has been the promises that came with the 2016 peace agreement that was signed under the previous administration, Santos's administration.
0: Can we just wind back on the 2016 peace deal with the FARC guerrillas? Because it seems to be a, a thread that you keep mentioning as part of this current conflict. Clearly, um, it plays a big part in the politics of Colombia. Can you explain what the deal was for people who, who don't know?
1: So the 2016 peace agreement was an agreement with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia or the FARC only. FARC was a guerrilla organisation, a Marxist-Leninist organisation that had been fighting for 54 years in Colombia's civil war. The big point here, though, is that the agreement was only signed with FARC. There is a second guerrilla organisation in Colombia called the ELN or the National Liberation Army that was not part of this agreement.
0: These were the people running the cocaine trade, right?
1: FARC had a monopoly on key routes of the cocaine trade and also a monopoly of territorial control and influence in areas where the coca plant grew. Mm. Now, what has happened is that now FARC has left these areas, other organised crime groups have come in to fill the vacuum that has been left by FARC. The big thing here is that the agreement wasn't just about a ceasefire and a disarmament and demobilisation of FARC. Within the peace agreement, there were actually actually six points that placed overwhelming emphasis on structural, economic and also societal reforms for the whole of Colombia.
3: Where do you rate this compared to previous uprisings in the region and and what hallmarks does this have that perhaps it, it has a different sort of appeal and might not just peter out?
1: There were protests in 2019, but I think what is particularly key and worrying in these demonstrations has been the police brutality. And this is a key issue that has really generated more discontent and more disenchantment towards the current administration. And one of the reasons why we're really seeing a crisis of legitimacy for not only the government, but also for ordinary Colombians The police have really responded with repression here, and this is something that has not been seen before. Again, overlaying, claiming that guerrilla groups are actually responsible for these protests is something that is really quite unprecedented. There are really real grievances here that the government is going to have to contend with.
3: We've seen some resignations. The finance minister was forced to resign after an embarrassing blunder. Do you think that will be enough to stop the protesters and appease them should key ministers stand down?
1: No, I don't think it will be. Um, I think what needs to happen here, and which is actually happening, is that there does need to be negotiations with the protests. Now, this has already started. There have been representatives now from Central Democrático, Aduca's Party, and also the Colombian Congress that have begun meeting with protesters by way of the National Strike Committee. But I think one of the bigger issues here will be seeking solutions to police repression and brutality, and that is going to be something that is going to be very difficult to achieve.
0: Okay, so it does look like they're heading in the right direction rather than flaring up more tensions with the protests at at this point, several weeks in?
1: It's complex at the moment. It's also questionable the degree to, again, which these uh, demands are actually going to be met. But we are moving in the right direction in terms of the negotiation process. So this is something that perhaps can provide a bit of a beacon of hope.
0: That was Alexandra Phelan from Monash Uni. And I think, Annika, underlying all that is a lot of instability in Colombia because of the long history of the cocaine trade.
3: Yeah, to, um, I guess, ignore that as a big part of the economy is pretty difficult during this recent round of debates. There just seems to have been a different shift in the power dynamics in that cocaine trade.
0: Yeah, and that trade has provided a lot of income to farmers in in rural parts of Colombia. So it's part of the economy and the politics of that country And sounds like a continually destabilising force. Tomorrow on the briefing, why losing your religion can be harder than it looks. Listener.